Please remain standing for today's Old Testament lesson from the book of Exodus, chapter 14, verses 5 through 15. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the minds of Pharaoh and his officials were changed toward the people, and they said, What have we done letting Israel leave our service? So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 picked chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the Israelites who were going out boldly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, his chariot drivers and his army. They overtook them camped by the sea of Pihahirath in front of Baal Zephon. As Pharaoh drew near, the Israelites looked back, and there were the Egyptians advancing on them. In great fear, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the very thing we told you in Egypt? Let us alone, and let us serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and see the deliverance that the Lord will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to keep still. Then the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry out to me? Tell the Israelites to go forward. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Grace and peace to each of you. It is so good to be with you in God's house today. Um, it's almost unbelievable to me that today is October the 2nd. Uh, we begin the final quarter of 2022, and I don't know a better way to do it than to come to the Lord's table today. It's been two and a half years, hasn't it, since we have received communion by intention, uh, and it is a great privilege uh, to do that with you all today. I want to thank our men, uh, our men's chorus, our women, as you heard from Adam, are on retreat. Uh, beautiful, beautiful music. Uh, not much to look at, but beautiful music today uh, from from our men. We're so grateful to each of you uh, for sharing with us, to all of our musicians. Uh, Judy, thank you for reading our lesson and Adam for leading us today. I want to remind you, Adam's already reminded you, but tonight uh, from 4 to 6.30, the Jamboree, the food is free, by the way, uh, free barbecue. It's coming from Corky's and uh, you'll want to come and join us. And uh, I understand that there's some clergy who are going to be in the, in the Duncan tank too. So there'll be a, a rebaptism of some sort this afternoon. And we hope you'll come and join us, especially when Adam gets in the dunking machine, um, especially then. Well, friends, we're continuing this series in week eight. We started the second Sunday in August, this series called Deliverance on the book of Exodus. And we're working our way slowly and sequentially through the book of names, as our Hebrew friends call it, the book of Shemot, which we call the book of Exodus, which literally, exousia means departure. And we're in week eight. We have three 
Sundays left. The journey to freedom for the Hebrews started in chapter 12, which we read last week, with Pharaoh's release of the Hebrew slaves. After all this time, finally, hardening the heart, changing the mind, Pharaoh finally finds it within himself to release the Hebrew slaves. We noted, however, last week that the Hebrews did not leave Egypt alone. I'd never noticed this verse before, but Exodus chapter 12, verse 38 says it was a mixed crowd that went up with them. And we talked about how, how the Hebrew word mixed means foreigners. And so this was not just a Hebrew tribe. It was not just an ethnic group of people. There must have been Midianites. There were Hittites. There were probably even Egyptians who chose to leave Egypt with them, but they all had one thing in common. They were disillusioned by Pharaoh's repressive regime. And now in the text that Judy read for us, we see Pharaoh's last ditch effort to block their exit. And so here again, as we've seen before, this wavering, ambivalent monarch has a change of mind. After the tenth and final plague, you remember there were nine plagues, but the tenth was the death to the firstborn children of Egypt, from palace to pasture to prison, all the firstborn gone. After the final plague, Pharaoh was initially relieved to be rid of these troublemakers. That is, until he did the math. When he realized the financial hit of losing the entire slave labor force, his heart became hardened. It was an economic decision that changed his heart. I was reading the other day about a painful history in our own land. By 1860, get this, there were more millionaires living in the lower Mississippi Valley than anywhere else in the United States. In that same year, 1860, the nearly 4 million American slaves were worth, get this, $3.5 billion. They were the largest single financial asset in the entire U.S. economy, more than all the manufacturing together and the railroads combined. I don't know if you remember about 30 years ago, there was a political pundit, a consultant, who coined a phrase that has become a staple now in every election. Four words. It's the economy, stupid. And so for Pharaoh, it's the economy. It's amazing what we sometimes do in the name of economics. And so this Pharaoh switches gears. As they're leaving, he watches financial loss, and he calls in his secretary of defense, and they dial up the secretary of the chariot section of the military. In fact, the writer of Exodus remembers the exact number of chariots, 600 chariots, and these are not just standard. These are picked, elite. They're platinum chariots, all-wheel drive, and suddenly it's game on. These runaway refugees are nearing the water, which is going to hem them in. They're in danger now. And as they're nearing the water, they begin to hear the distant rumbling of the sound of hoof beats. 
When they realize now that they're being pursued, there's panic in the ranks. Can you imagine that? Sheer panic. Verse 10 says, they cry out to the Lord. What else are you going to do? And after crying to God, the next line says, they begin to blame their leader, Moses. This is what we do in a panic, in a crush. They begin to accuse Moses. They blame their leader. And you know as well as I do that the one thing the leader can never do is to pass the buck. I declare whenever you see people in positions of power who are blaming and shaming other people while simultaneously excusing themselves from any and all responsibility, you know that there's a void in leadership. You remember the old ball coach, Don Shula, who once said the inferior leader blames everybody else around him. The superior leader blames him or herself. I remember in one of our churches, I think it was in Roswell, Bob, in North Atlanta, uh, we had a particular staff person, loved him. He was gifted, capable, intelligent, but he had an aversion to constructive criticism. And whenever something went awry, whenever something went uh, wrong in his department, his area, it was always somebody else's fault. He, He could never say, my bad, or I'm sorry. It was always, I'm sorry if you feel that I have disappointed you. And I remember thinking to myself, I I think he's the master of the alibi. But in our text, Moses doesn't deny he accepts the criticism without defense. And that's interesting. That's hard to do. Without internalizing the conflict, he accepts the defense. Listen to verses 10 through 12 again. As Pharaoh drew near, the Israelites looked back and there were the Egyptian troops advancing on them. And in great fear, one translation says in terror, the Israelites cried out to the Lord and then said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? The complaint is somewhat humorous, I think, because you know as well as I do from your history that Egypt Egypt was famous for its graves. Egypt was renowned for its tombs, its crypts, its pyramids, and its mummification. They were obsessed with the afterlife. Some of you have seen, I remember when it came to Atlanta, uh, some some of you have seen the remnants, haven't you, of King Tut's tomb. There were over 5,000 objects that were found in this tomb. There was jewelry, there was statues, there was boats, there was a chariot, there was weapons, there was clothing. I'm also interested in the afterlife, but I just don't want to take all of that with me. But they were obsessed with it, fixated on the hereafter. And so the answer to the question, were there no graves in Egypt, is, is a big fat no. No, there were plenty of graves in Egypt, and they were big, and there was a lot of room in them. And the critique continues. What have you done to us? Bringing us out of Egypt, is this not the very thing we told you, Moses, in Egypt? Let us alone, let us serve the Egyptians. It's better to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And in the midst of the crisis begins the I told you so's. We told you. Have you noticed that crises have a way of bringing out the I told you so's in us? 
In fact, I remember a couple of years ago, someone saying to me, I hate to be the one to say, I told you so. And I said, well, I hate it worse than you do. And by the way, if you hate it so much, why do you do it? Maybe we don't always dislike I told you so as much as we say we dislike I told you so. But that's crisis. Trouble always brings the coulda, shoulda, wouldas out of a crowd. I I remember in one particular church we had tried a program that didn't work. And the worst part of all was it was my idea. And I remember going to the board meeting knowing that I was going to eat crow And sure enough, Bill stood up and said, I hate to be the one to say, I told you so, but I told you so. And and I'll tell you why it didn't work. The reason your program didn't work, he started again, the reason your program didn't work. And finally he said, I don't know why the program didn't work. And I said, well, Bill, if we had been equipped with that information, the program would have succeeded. I told you so. But when you look closer, when you examine closer the complaints, you'll see something interesting. They mention their complaint about the Egyptians five times in three verses, but they never mention God. In other words, they cite the source of their fear, but they never cite the source of their faith. And that's a problem. When they look back, they only see the problem. And I think sometimes it's a form of a syndrome that I call functional atheism, where we cry out to God, but we act as though it's all on me. As though it's all like the world is completely on my shoulders. But Moses listened. I appreciate that. Moses sympathized with the concern. Don't you know he felt it too? He empathized. And it's helpful, I think, to get it out. It's helpful to vent the frustration that we're feeling that we cannot hide. And certainly there's plenty of lamenting in the Bible. God gives us permission. But I want to go on record this morning of objecting to one of their complaints. I object to the idea that it is better to be a slave in Egypt than to roll the dice of God on God in the wilderness. I think they're wrong at that point. I've come to the decision that I think there's something actually worse than physical death, and that's a failure of nerve. That's worse. A failure of courage. The refusal to risk myself for something that is bigger than me. I, I think that's a form of death too. Jesus said something interesting in John chapter 10, verse 10. He said, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. And I looked up that word abundance. The Greek is perisos, which means beyond measure. I want you to have life beyond your capacity to measure it beyond your imagination, beyond your expectation. Because for Jesus, life is not just about surviving. It's about thriving in a way that's beyond imagination. Five weeks ago, I was in Atlanta meeting with a group of 125 Methodist pastors at Peachtree Road 
Methodist Church. Our keynote speaker was a man by the name of Dr. Barry Black. Uh, some of you know Dr. Black. He was an, an, admirable, uh, an admiral in the Navy. He is chaplain of the U.S. Senate, and he's been the chaplain for 20 years. He said, you wouldn't believe that people can cross the aisle in a Bible study and a prayer meeting, but he said there's 30 of 100 senators who actually meet every week for prayer meeting. You wouldn't believe some of them holding hands the way sometimes we hear about them praying together, but they do because of Dr. Black's influence. In the course of his talk to us, he told us about a mentor who had been so influential to him as a teenager. His mentor was a pastor whose name was William Augustus Jones. And Barry said, I was talking to Dr. Jones. He was sort of, sort of the Bob Spain, Joe Pennell of the church. And he said, I was talking to him one day and he said, Dr. Jones, I always thought as a teenager that you weren't afraid of anything, that, that you're absolutely fearless. Is there anything you're afraid of? And William Augustus Jones thought for a moment and he said, well, actually there is. I'm afraid of three things. I'm afraid that my body will outlive my mind. I'm afraid that I will outlive my mourners. And I'm afraid that I may drown in shallow water. And he wasn't talking about hydro. I haven't been able to forget what he said. I'd rather die trying than forfeit in shallow water. I want, I want to go deep in God. I don't want to be lost in the, in the shallow end. Well, Moses hears, Moses understands, but he doesn't get defensive. He doesn't go personal. Listen to his response. I love this, verse 13. You don't have to be afraid. Stand firm and watch the deliverance that the Lord will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you'll never see again. The Lord will fight for you. Watch this. You have only to be still. Oh, no. That's the one thing I can never do. That's why I took out Psalm 46. Be still and know that I'm God. I can't stand to be still. But you can't really know God until we're still. And I have no idea what battle you may be facing today. I think we're all facing a battle. It may be a bad prognosis. It, it, it may be a relationship that's on the rocks, but everybody here in some form or fashion is between a rock and a hard place, and you can almost hear the hoof beats. You can see the problem, but you can't see the solution. And sometimes we're even wondering if God is aware. We feel alone. I have a word for you. Be still. Eugene Peterson was right when he said nothing of any value was ever accomplished by a stampede of your own action. And if God can part the waters, God will make a way where there is no way. He's in the fight. 
He's in the ring. In fact, 2 Chronicles 20 says, Don't be afraid or discouraged by the vast multitude, for the battle is not your own. It's God's battle. And he's in it with you. Last word. One of my all-time favorite movies is a motion picture called Lincoln. Have you seen it? Ten years ago, I think, 2012, the star of the film is Daniel Day-Lewis, who I think is the only male actor to ever have received the Academy Award three times. And he got it for this performance. There's a scene in the movie, maybe you remember it, where Lincoln is meeting with his colleagues and he's trying desperately to find a way to pass the 13th Amendment that will effectively end slavery and end the war. And he needs two votes and he can't seem to get them. It seems impossible. They're stuck and they're in a meeting, some of his allies, some of his opponents, and they're bickering with each other. And then they're bickering with the president And finally, after a few minutes of this bickering, an exhausted Lincoln, who was usually mild-mannered and soft-spoken, pounds his fist on the table and stands to his feet and says, Gentlemen, I'm the President of the United States of America, and I am clothed with immense power. You procure those votes for me. And you know they did. (laughs) I don't know if it was the fear of Lincoln or the fear of God. But 23 years after the event, James Alley, who was a congressman from Massachusetts, said that is exactly what the president said with such godly determination that we knew we had to do it. Well, there's a power that's greater than the Constitution. There's a power that's greater than the office of the President of the United States. There's a power that's greater than any Pharaoh or any Caesar or any king or queen of England. And God forgive me, sometimes I forget and we forget that we who are made in the image of God who are redeemed in the blood of Christ and sustained by the Holy Spirit are clothed in immense power. And we are emboldened to love, to serve, to risk, to reconcile, to share, and to thrive. Paul said it like this, we are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us and gave himself for us. And so that's why today, with Christians all over the world, we're going to come to the table. Because on this table today, there is a recipe for deliverance. The Passover celebrates the deliverance of Hebrews from bondage. But for us, that table, Jesus transformed the meaning of it. It's a reenactment of the life and death of Christ that has procured for us liberation from slavery to sin and death so that when we approach that table and eat the bread and drink the cup, there's no doubt about it. 
we are clothed in immense power to serve God and neighbor so that the world may know that there is a God who is still in the delivery business. May it be so. In Jesus' name.